Hi everyone, it's Aliza Licht here, your host, and I'm so thrilled to share that my new book, On Brand, Shape Your Narrative, Share Your Vision, Shift Their Perception, is out now. I hope you'll pick up a copy because personal branding is for everyone. It's for the new graduate starting out, the middle manager looking to level up, the executive who wants to be a thought leader, the entrepreneur starting from scratch. It's for anyone who wants to pivot or transition into something new. Because having a strong personal brand means that your name gets dropped in rooms you're not in and that you're thought of for opportunities that other people haven't even heard of yet. So pick up a copy and I can't wait to hear what you think. Hi, this is Aliza Licht, and this is Leave Your Mark, the podcast, where I brew fresh career advice in conversation with some of my most inspiring and successful friends. It's professional advice that you can action immediately, whether you're just starting out in your career or well on your way. With a massive to-do list and a large cup of coffee, I promise that you can get it all done and still have time to post about it. Robin Dumont, welcome to Leave Your Mark. I am so honored to have you on today. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. For everyone listening, Robin Gavon is the longtime fashion critic at the Washington Post. She covers fashion from a business, entertainment, and cultural phenomenon point of view. And everyone you should know, she is the first and only fashion writer to ever receive the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism, an honor you received in 2006. I mean, that is quite an astounding honor. How did that make you feel when you received that? I was overwhelmed. I was thrilled. I called my parents screaming into the telephone. uh, (laughs) And they weren't actually at home when I found out. So I left this crazy message and then had to call them back and say, I'm sorry, it's good news. It's good news. I'm not. (laughs) No one's dead. (laughs) I'm like not like by the side of the road or anything. And it also felt really great because so many of the writers, uh, mostly women, who had been covering the industry for a really long time and who had been super gracious and helpful when I first started, you know, celebrated with me and said that it felt like the entire sort of genre of fashion writing and reporting and criticism had been elevated in the eyes of their newsroom. So that was really nice. Absolutely. You're also the author of The Battle of Versailles, The Night American Fashion Stumbled into the Spotlight and Made History. We're going to talk about that later. Your work has graced the pages of Harper's Bazaar, Vogue, Essence, New York Magazine, The Daily Beast, and The New Yorker. And during your second and most recent stint at The Washington Post, in addition to your fashion coverage, which is nonstop... Robin covered Michelle Obama during the first year of the administration, and you are the author of Michelle, her first year as First Lady. And you've contributed to other books as well. You're so highly respected. And, you know, I did poll a few fashion industry insiders. I'm like, I'm speaking to Robin. What do you want me to ask her? And so many people want to hear about sort of the beginning, right? Like, You grew up in Detroit. Like, tell us a little bit about you before you're the public you. What were you like as a kid? Did you keep a journal like every day and constantly writing? I had a diary, but I didn't write in it every day. I just sort of would occasionally write in it if I was like in a bad mood, which basically comprised my entire year of being 16. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> which I think is not uncommon. But, you know, when I was growing up, I have told people this before, I really had no interest in fashion at all. And it wasn't even as if I had sort of an active dislike for it. It was just not part of my way of thinking. Mm -hmm. Um, But I loved writing and I loved biology. I thought I was going to be a doctor. I was going to be pre-med. Same. (laughs) But I loved English. I loved writing. I had some amazing English teachers when I was in high school and I think so many people can point to, you know, teachers that they had growing up who made an enormous impact. Mm -hmm. But I just had these English teachers who had such enthusiasm for writing and encouraged writing and, you know, the kind of teachers who would hand you a book that wasn't on the syllabus just because they thought you would be interested in it or they thought Mm -hmm. it would be something great for you to read. So that was really encouraged. So I kind of went to college thinking that I would either be an English or a biology major and I would go on to med school. And, you know, as happens with so many people, uh, chemistry changed my mind about that. Yes, I can definitely relate. I mean, you went to Princeton, so I imagine chemistry at Princeton is no joke. (laughs) It was not a joke. I actually enjoyed the lab portion which felt like, you know, a bit like the mad scientist portion. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I graduated college in the late 80s. And so, so many people in my class were headed off to Wall Street, or they were going to law school. And I really didn't have like, this burning sense of exactly what I was going to do. Mm -hmm. And so I was going to go to law school, and maybe try and practice like intellectual property law, something like that. And my mother said to me, why are you going to law school? (laughs) That's interesting. Which is like a very reasonable question. And I didn't really have a good answer other than saying that, you know, I thought being a lawyer would be interesting. Mm -hmm. And my mother just sort of very patiently said, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, that's great. But you always really loved writing. And, you know, have you thought about maybe going to grad school for English or for journalism? Wait, Robin, you loved writing. You loved your English teachers. You never thought about actually doing it for real? Well, you know, in the fantasy portion of my brain, I had this vision of me on a lake writing the great American novel or something, which I I think a lot of people have that vision. But I just didn't think that it was something that I could do right after college. I mean, I, I knew I needed a job of some sort. So what became that first? I mean, you went to grad school. You went to University of Michigan I to did. get your MA in journalism. So th- at that point, you were full-blown headed in that direction, obviously. Yeah, but you know, it's funny because, again, you know, I was an English major and when I started thinking about going to grad school, I ended up, like I had taken the LSAT, I'd applied to law school, and I deferred the University of Michigan Law School because I thought, "Mm, maybe I'm going to go to law school if this writing thing doesn't work out. But I actually ended up going to Michigan for grad school because I went to my advisor at Princeton, again, another English professor, who suggested that I go to Michigan instead of Columbia because she said, 
I'm not an expert in journalism, but I know that internships and being able to get practical experience are both really important. And it seems to me that you'd have more time to do that at Michigan. And that's why I ended up going to Michigan. Wow. More time because is she saying the curriculum was less rigorous than Columbia? Because it was two years. So it was spaced out over two years as opposed to Columbia, which is packed into one year. Got it. So you graduate, you finish, and did you get your first job at the Detroit Free Press? I did. And I honestly, looking back, I don't know what possessed me to say this, but it was one of the best things that I've ever said in an interview. Oh, I can't wait to hear. (laughs) Here is my great advice. So I go in for my interview at the Free Press. I've done a couple of internships and I had a couple of other job interviews but I really wanted to work at the free press. So after a couple of interviews, the editor offered me, I think it was like a two-year internship, which is often what publications will do if you are a very young writer. Yes, newspaper internships are paid, but still it was, you know, we'd like to offer you a two-year internship. And somewhere, I have no idea where these words came from, and I had no other job. But I said to this editor, that's a really great offer, but what I really want is a full-time job. Go you, Robin. Right? I have no idea where that came from. But maybe like my inner only child or something like just (laughs) said, no, I don't want an internship. I want a job. Like I want that damn business. (laughs) And so I remember this editor said, you know, okay, well, like I'll get back to you. And the next day, the editor called and offered me a full-time job. That is amazing. To this day, I'm like, that was such a wise thing to do because obviously the only thing that that person could say was no. Yeah, no. Asking for, I mean, asking for what you want. I mean, sometimes it does work out. But what was your beat at the Detroit Free Press? You weren't covering fashion straight away. No, 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 no. I started out in the entertainment section and I was Mm -hmm. just, I was a general assignment feature writer. So I wrote about whatever came up. But oddly enough, in the entertainment section, which was separate from sort of lifestyle features, um, everyone was a critic. So it was, you know, there's the pop music critic, the film critic, the classical music critic, so on and so on. And I was the only generalist in the department. I was also the youngest person in the department. So every time I had a story idea, I would have to sort of run it past whoever's beat it might conflict with Mm -hmm. and essentially say, do you have any plans for this topic? And, you know, and it was frustrating. And so I tried to kind of carve out a little, a niche for myself. And I ended up carving out sort of the world of like nightlife and dance music. And I wrote a lot about the rise of techno in Detroit Mm -hmm. at the time, Mm -hmm. basically because I was going out with my friends and dancing to techno and was getting (laughs) to know some of the disc jockeys and thought oh, well, this is an interesting, they have interesting stories. So that was my first beat. it's not conflicting with any of your other critics. So how did you then become a critic? Well, the person who was the fashion editor at the Free Press, uh, this amazing writer named Robin Epcarian, who now writes about politics for the LA Times and is brilliant at that, uh, became a lifestyle columnist. And the fashion editor job opened. 
Mm. And I raised my hand because I was desperate for a beat. And honestly, if the religion writer had left the job, I would have said, I could do that. I'll write about religion. I really, really just wanted a beat. And in order to prepare for the interview, you know, I had to sort of come up with, you know, like a little sort of outline of how I would cover the fashion industry. I knew nothing about fashion. So I went to the best source that I had, which was my former high school boyfriend who was gay, who loved fashion. Perfect. He was my gay conciliere, along with a dear cousin of mine who also loved fashion. And I basically said to them, tell me everything. (laughs) Like, what do I need to know? Well, you came up to speed real quick. And you had stints, I know, at the San Francisco Chronicle and Vogue. But the Washington Post sort of called for you in 95. And you are, to me, no matter where else you've been, you are Washington Post forever and forever. But I'm just curious, <laughs> what was your stint at like? It was really fascinating because at that point, I guess I'd been covering fashion for maybe five or six years. But I went to Vogue because, you know, that interview question that people always ask, where do you see yourself in five years? Yes, the worst question ever. The worst question ever. So my stock answer was always, I think it would be interesting to try my hand at a magazine. And then one day I get this phone call and I have this opportunity. And so off I go to Vogue. And it had the bonus of I got to move to New York where I'd always wanted to live. And I should have known this before I got there. But what I quickly realized was that the difference between writing about fashion for a newspaper and writing about fashion for a magazine is the difference between writing about an industry as an outside observer and covering an industry as an active participant in that industry. Well said. It also meant that at the Post, the only thing that mattered was, is this a story that's going to be of interest to the reader? Is it a newsworthy story? Is it a story that has a relevance in helping people understand more about the industry? Whereas with the magazine, there were other questions that you asked, namely, is this a Vogue story? Mm-hmm. What point of view should this story have? Does this story uh, help to move the industry forward, celebrate the industry? You know, there were all these other considerations. And I just realized that I liked being able to write about the industry as, you know, the person sort of standing in the doorway, having a really good view of it, but still having an arm's distance from it. I've read somewhere, I've heard you say that because you were not a fashion obsessed child, teenager, young person, whatever, you always maintained a level of skepticism in the way that you think about fashion. And I think that that probably has something also to do with why you preferred being at the Post or newspaper versus Vogue, because in Vogue or any magazine, it's always going to be a fluff piece, right? Have we ever seen any sort of opinion in a magazine back then? And maybe more so now, but I feel like the opinion piece of it, the point of view, is more diluted. 
because of an advertising perspective, don't you think? Yes and no. I mean, I always felt like the best thing about fashion magazines was that they do give you this insider's perspective and mm-hmm. they are told from the point of view of the fashion expert and the fashion lover. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real joy and sense of community with that. But that was not the community that excited me. I was always more interested in having a conversation with other journalists, you know, in my sort of quote unquote downtime, because my love was for the writing. It wasn't necessarily for the subject matter that I was writing about. Mm -hmm. I loved the reporting and I loved putting the stories together. Um, The other thing too, is that I think when I have talked to people who have been very much sort of fashion first and what drew them to writing about fashion, I do feel like they have a greater sense of conflict because they are more invested in the fashion industry. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. You know, and I never really felt like I had that conflict because for me, my priority was always clear. You know, I was in it for the reader and I wanted to ask the questions that I thought the reader would be interested in knowing. And I wanted to break down the myths and cut through the smoke and mirrors for the benefit of the reader. Well, you've certainly done that. Well, I'm just curious. I know you reviewed it. What is your opinion on whole Andre Anna saga? <laughs> Having been there at the same time. One of the most incredible profiles that I've ever read. I like ripped it out. It was in the New Yorker magazine. I ripped it out. I still have like the probably yellowing pages somewhere um, in a folder. And it was written by Hilton Alls about Andre Leontali. And it was called The One and Only. And it was essentially about Andre's professional life at the height of his clout and influence at Vogue. And it was about the singularity of his life, of being Mm -hmm. this Black gay man at the top of the fashion pyramid. And it was, I thought, just deeply moving and delightful and fascinating and illuminating, mostly because it really got to this idea that so many expectations were poured into Andre, were poured into, you know, a flawed human being, as every person is flawed. So when I was reading the Chiffon Trenches and just sort of knowing both Andre and Anna, it made me think about the difficulty and all the things that Andre has to navigate. The sense of now having a little bit of distance from the intense glare of being, you know, in the thick of it. Mm -hmm. You know, he's now semi-retired sort of, um, and feeling that he could speak more honestly. You know, I thought that it was at times very unself-aware, but also at times very painfully honest. Again, with someone who loved, who loved fashion. And I think there was absolutely a sense of 
not just sort of drinking the Kool-Aid of fashion, but just, you know, dining out on the whole buffet and enjoying that and reveling in it, but then also having to deal with sort of the downside mm-hmm. of that world where people move on to the next bright, shiny object. Well said. So you're known for your blunt and brilliant writing. What is the worst reaction you have ever gotten from someone you've written about? I I mean, let's just discuss first. You can hold that thought for a second. Let's just discuss. Okay. We're talking Hillary Clinton, July 20th, 2007. Your headline is Hillary Clinton's tentative dip into new neckline territory. And I just want to quote, you're saying, you're talking about what she's wearing on the Senate floor. And you end with, it was even more surprising to know that it was coming from Clinton, someone who has been so publicly ambivalent about style, image, and the burdens of both. But this is literally about her cleavage. And then Michelle Obama on her family vacation in her shorts, which, by the way, I totally understand your point of view with this. And you wrote, avoiding the appearance of queenly behavior is politically wise, but it does American culture no favors if a first lady tries so hard to be average that she winds up looking common. I so understand your point of view, but I'm curious, well, one, what was the worst reaction, as I asked you before, but also, do you still feel the same way? Um, I'll answer the second question first. Okay. Yes and yes, about both of them. With the Hillary Clinton one, you know, the context for that was she was during this period when she was, I think, sort of publicly wrestling with this idea of how much of sort of the fact that she was a woman did she want to inject into her campaign. Mm-hmm. And it just seems so tortured right? Because obviously she is a woman. So like you bring your entire self to a campaign. And yet it was just such a tortured, uh, parsed, political, polled thing that she seemed to be going through. So that's why when she was wearing this, you know, neckline that showed this tiniest, tiniest bit of cleavage. And it was like, wow, there's like this womanly feminine thing happening here. Um, That column ended up being used as a fundraiser (laughs) for Clinton because her campaign decided to tap into any outrage that the column provoked among her supporters. So how much money did you raise? <laughs> right? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you, but I, I don't know. Um, with the Michelle Obama one, you know, Michelle Obama had such passionate fans that, you know, I certainly heard from them. And it was this sort of, she can wear whatever she wants to wear. But, you know, my point was that she was working very hard to be this very relatable first lady, but at the same time, she was still the first lady. And when she was on her family vacation, uh, and I had been told that she had said to her staff, are these shorts okay? And her staff said, "Eh, you're on vacation. But the point was that she wasn't on vacation. And it was part of like the very tricky, very often unfair role of the first lady, which Mm -hmm. is that you're semi-private, but you're also always public. 
And the fact that she wasn't, you know, pulling up in an RV with her family, she was getting off of Air Force One. Right. You know, there was a travel pool with them. There were photographers waiting at the base of the steps to take the photograph. There were military officers standing at attention as they disembarked. So, Mm -hmm. yes, she was on a family vacation, but this was still very much a public moment for the first family. And I think that that matters. Um, Probably the most, I mean, I certainly have gotten calls from designers who were disappointed with a review. And I embrace that 110%. I have always said that I am always happy to talk to a designer about a review. I'm always happy to meet with them, you know, any of those things I'd rather do than to have them sitting in their showroom jabbing pins into like a voodoo doll of me (laughs) or just stewing and, you know, reading things into a review that were not there certainly by intention. Um, When I've written about public figures, I would say by far the most vocal reactions have typically come from men that I have written about their attire, much more so than women. Men get very defensive about a column that, you know, maybe talked about a suit or a tie or cufflinks or whatever. And yes, and they will call or write and explain themselves and tell me that, you know, the pinstripes maybe were like much bolder on television or in photographs, but, you know, really they were much, they were much more subtle in person. Um, I would say probably the most startling reaction was quite early when I was at the Post and I was writing about a local model agency that also had a school attached to it. And as so often happens with modeling schools, it was much more interested in getting money from students than really offering them anything of value. And I had gotten a lot of phone calls from people who had been approached by the school, who had enrolled in it and had really felt like they'd been duped. And after the story ran, the owner of the school confronted me at like a cocktail party, which was kind of daunting. I would imagine over the years, you've developed quite a thick skin for the reactions. But what would you tell, I mean, right now, especially, you know, in the age of social media, I feel like journalists are really putting themselves at risk in a way for, for having a strong opinion on anything right now. What would you recommend to younger journalists who are sort of starting out? And the, the heat is hot, like real hot sometimes. What do you think are great ways to handle that? You know, I don't know that I have that thick of a skin, I still find a lot of the vitriol that comes my way often to be really painful and hurtful. And in some ways, I think that that's a a good thing. Because if you have too many calluses built up, you lose your sense of compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. And so as much as I think it can be painful sometimes, I think it's also just a reminder that you know, you still have the ability to be moved and to be hurt. Because I think a lot of times the things that I read on social media from 
people I don't know, from other people in the industry, sometimes I just think to myself, like, if you wouldn't walk up to that person and say that to them, why would you say it in such a massive public forum like that? Like, I was recently, I was particularly distressed when uh, I saw some negative comments about a story that someone had written that I know. And I just thought to myself, I don't really understand this need to just sort of publicly dissect this story. There were no factual errors. I mean, this wasn't a column. It was just a story that, you know, someone didn't particularly like. And I thought, what is with the sort of performative righteousness? I mean, if you have a problem with it, you could call that person and you could have a conversation with them. But instead, you choose to do it in this really performative self-indulgent, self-congratulatory way. You know, I certainly have had those moments when the Twitter mob has risen up uh, and come after me. And I will respond if I feel like you're putting out just factually incorrect information. But if your sole desire is just to like lob insults at me, my feeling is sort of, you know what, if that makes you feel better, have at it. Because if you really wanted to say something of substance to me, I'm pretty easy to find. I mean, it's not hard to get my, you know, post email address. You could reach out to me and you could say it and we could have a conversation. But that's clearly not what's wanted. Um, And the other thing that I would say, you know, just be careful of how much of your personal self you put out there. I mean, I think it's one thing to have a professional presence and to engage with people about your work and to engage with them, you know, about sort of lighthearted aspects of your life. I mean, my dog has way too much uh, of a presence on my Instagram, (laughs) but the more of yourself that you put out there, the more that I feel that you are at risk of having a really mean-spirited public just gnaw away at your personal self. That's great advice. Do you have any rules in your professional role that you set for yourself when you're sort of thinking about a story and what compels you to write? When anything is about sort of criticism, my rule of thumb is it's not personal. You know, it's about the subject at hand. It's about uh, the event the, the policy, the presentation, you know, when I've written sort of those columns about public figures and the way that they present themselves in a particular situation, you know, my focus is on those things that people make choices about, namely the clothing choices or perhaps a makeup choice or a hairstyle choice. I've had people say, oh, you know, why don't you write about so-and-so's figure or how much they weigh or this or that. And, and I'm like, because that to me is just an ad hominem attack on someone's mm-hmm. person. Absolutely. My focus is on the ways that people choose to present themselves. Yes. I am not interested in the size of someone's hips or the width of their nose or whether they're short or they're tall. It's always those things that people make an active choice about using to tell their story in public. What makes a good pitch to you? I could never 
I don't think I could ever do uh, PR because <laughs> I just I would find it so grueling. Um, that's a really good question. I mean, I think there are some things that are just obvious, like it's news, it's happening. Sure. For me, I'm always looking for, well, what's the narrative? Like after that nut graph that says this is, you know, who, what, when, where, then what? What's the rest of the story? Or how does this one thing help tell the story of a bigger issue? You know, recently I wrote a story about the brand Chiara Boni, which has this New York-based sales showroom owner who enthusiastically tags the brand and himself with all of these different women from Trump world. And I sort of discovered it sort of just by happenstance. And I went down this rabbit hole and I was fascinated by, you know, his social media and the way that he was positioning the brand and the designer and founder of the brand, you know, is in Italy and has no interest in having her brand associated with, you know, the Trumps. And when I was thinking about why am I writing this story other than like the fact that I'm so fascinated by this person's use of social media. And so I, I went through, you know, a whole thought process of why is this story worth telling? And I realized that the thing that was standing out to me was how rare it was that someone was doing this. And the fact that like the vast majority of the fashion industry has either aggressively pulled away from any connection to Trump world or is just silent when someone wears something, you know, that is, has their label in it. I don't get the email saying, look, look, so-and-so is wearing, you know, the brand. It's just radio silence. And what was fascinating was that this guy was speaking up and he seemed to be speaking up from this place of, I can separate my friendships from politics from fashion, that all these things can be separate and yet they can also be mutually beneficial for me. And it just seemed like it was one, incredibly naive and a throwback to a distant, distant time of, you know, four years ago, <laughs> which seems now like it was 400 years ago. 400 years ago, for sure. But it just really struck me as the reason that I want to tell this story is because this incredible dichotomy speaks so much to where we are right now mm -hmm. and how challenging it is to even imagine a time when, you know, these tensions didn't exist. Fascinating. What is your biggest pet peeve as a journalist? Things that really bother you. I hope none of my pictures ever bother you. <laughs> oh my God, never, ever, ever. Um, you were always very popular <laughs> as well. So thank you for that. My, uh, you know, I will say that one of, okay, I, I have many pet peeves. I don't know that I have a, a big one. Let's lay them out. <laughs> one of my pet peeves, which is probably me channeling my mother, is the pitch I mean, it's a general pitch. It's not like it's coming from someone who knows me and sure. you know, we have a relationship. 
It's the general pitch and it begins, hey, (laughs) that's it. That's it. It makes me nuts because I'm just like, you don't know me. Why are you haying me? It just, it's like this feeling of you're walking down the street and someone just screams, hey, (laughs) I'm like, that's rude. Don't do that. (laughs) Another bad peeve is I know that there are some places that really like it when they get a pitch and they can look and see how often the thing that's being pitched has been covered in the past. The thinking is that sort of that adds to its legitimacy as a story. At the Washington Post, the kiss of death is when someone pitches something to me and says, look at CNN mentioned this or that newspaper up in New York mentioned this. My response is, why would I write about it now? Well, to me, that's just stupidity. That's PR stupidity. Like, of course not. But I have had people say that some people like to see where stories have run before because it brings greater like, legitimacy to the story itself. But my feeling is, well, if you've already gotten like three stories, good for you. Good for you. <laughs> what are you most proud of besides your poems? I would say a couple of things in terms of the way that I cover fashion. I would say I'm most proud that I think that most people in the industry feel that I cover it fairly and that I cover it with both rigor and compassion. Well, I would agree with that. What keeps you motivated right now? Probably a combination of curiosity and insecurity. (laughs) (laughs) Does fashion still bring you that same joy writing about fashion? Yeah, it does. For me, when I say that it brings me joy, it means that it is intellectually intriguing. There's still some intellectual challenges to it. And yeah, in that way, it still does. And it also still has a tremendous capacity to shock the heck out of me. Well, that's definitely true. Let's talk about your book. And I think it's really interesting. First of all, I think we should share because a lot of people listening to this podcast probably do not know what the Battle of Versailles fashion show was and how important it was. Yeah, so the Battle of Versailles began as essentially a publicity uh, event to promote American fashion. And it was the brainchild of Eleanor Lambert, who was sort of the godmother of sort of the structure of American fashion, New York Fashion Week, CFPA. This is 1973. 1973. And she was approached by the curator at Versailles to organize a fundraiser. And the reason that this curator was asking her was because uh, Americans had given a lot of money uh, to support Versailles. It was very chic for Americans to, you know, be involved in this French institution. And Eleanor Lambert had for a very long time really wanted to elevate 
the prestige of American designers on the world stage. She had come to New York as someone who loved fashion and wanted to represent fashion designers, but realized that, you know, at that point, it was really a challenge and sort of had veered off into the world of visual arts, but her heart was still in fashion. And so when she was given this opportunity, she decided that it would be great to bring five American designers to show their collection at Versailles alongside the French and sort of adding to the stature of the event. The idea was that the French would invite the Americans to come and to present their collection. So that was really uh, what the show itself was. And then Women's Wear Daily and, you know, a couple of other of uh, the New York papers sort of transformed it from this lovely charity event into this competition as they sort of start to build up the anticipation for it. And that's sort of how it started being referred to as the battle. What I read in preparing for our talk is, and this was really kind of noteworthy, the five American designers used 11 black models in that show. And I find it amazing when you talk about, you know, 1973, and I think that, you know, take from that point through the the time that's passed to where we are right now, and I'll use your words, there's global demand for fashion to be more inclusive, more proactive on issues of racial justice, and more aware of its footfalls in the culture. What do you think, because you have this incredible knowledge of history through the industry, what do you think happened from the time that they were like, of course, forget that's who we're showing with, 11 Black Models in a show in 1973, to sort of the whitewashing that happened from that time forward to where we are now. Like, there was obviously a time when there was more inclusivity and diversity. You know, in looking back, my sense is that the way that the industry looked at the 70s with the Black models wasn't as a matter of necessary inclusivity. Um, I think they saw it as sort of part of a movement and a style. And, you know, I hesitate to use the word trend, but in some ways I do think that it was more trend Mm -hmm. than moral imperative. And one of the things that was happening certainly in the 70s and into the 80s was that the fashion shows were, the models were the entertainment. You know, this sort of preceded the era of like holograms and glaciers on the runway. And so in order to create a sense of energy and vibrancy, designers really relied on the models to show the clothes and to spin and to twirl and to have personality. And that was kind of the thing that a lot of the Black models were really known for. Um, Some of them at Versailles had come out of Ebony Fashion Fair, which was more about entertainment than simply walking back and forth and showing clothes. Um, One of the things that distinguished the models in Versailles that the Americans used versus the French was that, you know, the French method of showing couture at that point was really quite sedate and it was sitting in you know, an ornate room on a little gilded chair with models holding, you know, a card with a number 
and moving slowly through the room and turning slowly. And, you know, Balenciaga shows were done in silence. So the idea of models moving to music and being that source of vibrant entertainment was relatively new and refreshing. And I think that was part of what sort of captured the industry's imagination Mm -hmm. and black models were part of that and they captured the industry's imagination. But as so often happens with the industry, you know, aesthetics begin to shift and people want to try something different. And in the 90s, the industry became completely enamored with Brazilian models and then Eastern European models. And, you know, the attraction to the Eastern European models was not because of their diversity. It was because they all had this really, you know, angular, thin, almost bird-like quality to their physique. And that became the fascination for such a long time. And I think only now as we start, you know, things are, again, much, much, much more diverse on the runway. Um, And they have been, I think, for the last probably five, six years. But the reason for that, the argument uh, to push for that hasn't been about aesthetics and it hasn't been about trends. It has really been rooted in this is the morally correct thing to do. Mm -hmm. This is what the world looks like and fashion should be a reflection of the world, Mm -hmm. which is why I tend to think that this moment has more of a chance of sticking Mm -hmm. and becoming the norm. Yes. And your position, I mean, you are one of few black journalists in fashion. How do you feel a sense of responsibility to propel this forward and to make it stick? Or do you? Do you feel any sort of responsibility? My responsibility is to the news and to the story and to the reader. And my feeling is that if I am true to those responsibilities, then I am naturally focused on the issue of inclusivity and what that means. I mean, as a writer, wanting to tell new and fresh stories, I am always trying to find the new and interesting and different designer or point of view. You know, part of my job is to elevate voices that aren't necessarily always heard. And that just sort of naturally means that I would elevate, you know, a more diverse group of people. You know, and I think every journalist strives to be, I hope, as fair as possible. And fair to me also means making space for different voices and points of view and aesthetics and, you know, realizing that the darling young designer of the moment can look a lot of different ways and come from a lot of different places. That was a perfect segue for me. Thank you. (laughs) Pleasure. Because, you know, the CFDA obviously just announced their nominations for 2020. And I couldn't help but think like, it's just the same old. It's the same old names, right? So 
I guess my question is, you know, post-COVID, in the current world we live in, your perspective on fashion, does the consumer even care? Is creativity still a thing or do we just need to be practical at this point? And is the CFDA really doing its part in making the world care about fashion by sort of nominating the same names we've seen for the past, you know, 10, 15 years? And I say that with total respect to Stephen Cole, but I'm just curious. The CFDA has created a situation that makes the awards really difficult because there's really no clear description of what it means to say, okay, you know, best women's wear designer, American women's wear designer, best American men's wear designer. Part of the problem is that by the time people start looking for the quote unquote best of, uh, that is defined in such a murky way that you end up sort of coming back to the same names over and over. And as soon as a new name sort of rises to the level of, oh, you know, you're no longer an emerging designer. Now you're playing in the, you know, the main pond. You sort of see that person get nominated over and over It's and true. Over. It's true. So I don't know that I have a solution other than I can certainly express my exasperation that I see the same names again and again and again. And it's hard to deny that, you know, those people who are nominated had terrific collections. I mean, they are talented and they have the ability to put on these really polished shows and present their collection in the most compelling way. But I, I think where the work has to happen is away from the awards and all the way back to, you know, who's getting the opportunity to build brands who's getting the opportunity to take on creative director roles. And also, you know, I think it would be helpful if the industry wasn't so focused on a particular kind of brand that when it's deciding whether or not someone should be nominated, I mean, there is this tendency to feel that, you know, in order to be best American, whatever, uh, you're looking at a particular price point and you're looking at a particular sensibility. Um, I mean, I think there are a lot of very successful brands that do a really terrific job in engaging their customer and making their customers absolutely happy and passionate about the clothing in their closet that aren't considered because they don't sort of fall into the very narrow, generalized parameters of the judging guidelines. Yeah, I think that's very accurate. Is there something left on your bucket list that you'd like to do professionally? I have an endless bucket list. <laughs> More like a bathtub. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got like an ocean's worth of things that I would love to do. I mean, I would love to write another book, a nonfiction book. I 
still harbor a desire to write some great fiction book. I aspire to, um, you know, write the best newspaper columns and stories and narratives and profiles I possibly can. I still aspire to astound myself and my readers. Oh, you definitely do that. <laughs> What's the best advice you've ever been given? Hmm. I would say, well, the best advice I've ever given to myself has like been it. don't take it personally. Because I think that particularly covering an industry like fashion, which, you know, is small and challenging and filled with so many different passionate personalities, I think it's good to remember that when it comes to the work, you know, be passionate about your work, but don't let the personalities and all the noise get into your head so that you start absorbing it and taking it personally. Focus on on the work. And, you know, I have people in the industry that I consider dear friends, but our friendship exists outside of the work. Um, the best advice that I've been given from someone else in terms of professionally, it probably has been like sort of the rules of like the journalism. As long as you focus on the rules of journalism, like you'll be okay because they'll keep you out of trouble. I love that. How do you ultimately want to leave your mark? What do you want to be remembered for? Oh my God. I know this question always gets everyone just like all the feels. (laughs) Wow. Um, I think it would be that it sounds so sappy, but I would hope that people would think that I left things a little bit better than I found them. It's not sappy. (laughs) It's not sappy. It's pure and it's gracious. And I think that it's perfectly in line with your personal brand. So well done you. (laughs) Robin, this has been such a pleasure. You're such a talent and Truly, I mean, I've read your work for a million years, and I'm so honored to have had the opportunity to work with you over the course of my time in fashion. And I just think that you say it like it is, and you say it with total respect and point of view and background and reasoning. And I just think you should just continue doing you because... We need people in the world like you. Oh, thank you so much. And, you know, truly, it was always a pleasure working with you. Thank you. You were always just so human. Oh, well, that is good. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? You were just a really lovely, real person, which just made everything so much easier and happier. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to Leave Your Mark, the podcast. If you want more career advice, be sure to pick up my best-selling book, Leave Your Mark. If you want to subscribe to my career advice newsletter, Blackboard, you can do so on alizalick.com. 
Be sure to follow me on Instagram at ElisaLichtXO or reach out on Twitter at ElisaLicht. And just remember this, if change doesn't hurt a little, it's not change. Keep on rocking.